0: Hello, welcome to episode four of the Cirrus Squash podcast. Today we have on a special guest. It is Neil Harvey, who, uh, yes, you probably recognize the name from uh, he coached Peter Nichol to world number one. Uh, he also himself made uh, world number 12 at one point uh, as a player, and he coached LJ, Ong Benghi, uh, countless others actually into the top uh, 10 or 15 in, into the world. So he's definitely known for getting the most out of his players and, and bringing them to the top. Uh, so we start off talking about why he got into coaching, what he loves about coaching, uh, and then talk a lot about uh, the professional game, uh, talk a little bit about tactics, uh, lefties. Uh, we talk a little bit about, um, you know, his favorite types of practices and training methods. And there's lots of great tips in here. Uh, so I, I know you're definitely going to enjoy this episode. I learned quite a few things and, and stuff that I'm going to use um, when I'm coaching moving forwards. So here we go. Episode four with Neil Harvey. All right. So today on uh, episode four of the serious squash podcast, I have, uh, an ex-professional, uh, PSA player. I, I looked online, I believe, uh, highest world ranking was 12, uh, coached a lot of big names. I didn't have to look at this part, uh, Peter Nichol, LJ, and, uh, one of my rivals when I was out, uh, out East in Canada, Matt Bishop. I don't know if he belongs on that list with those guys, but uh, you know, obviously a a, a big dog in uh, in Halifax, in the Atlantic uh, provinces. So I have Neil Harvey on. Uh, welcome to uh, the podcast, and thanks a lot for joining me. Hi, Chris. Uh, so I, I just want to start off. I'm um, curious how you got into coaching, especially after uh, you know having such a successful
1: uh, pro career. So I um, I did a bachelor of education in um, phys ed and math. At uh, the London London uh, University, and in my, in my third year, uh, the government were changing kind of the, the ethos towards PE, and they were they were starting this kind of uh, nobody c- nobody has to win program. It's all about participation to make every kid feel really inclusive and and, uh, and important. And you know, having been very competitive at all the sports that I played as a kid growing up, um, certainly uh, soccer and cricket and and obviously, then squash. Played a lot of badminton at university as well. It, it wasn't a good skills fit for me. I, I really didn't want to coach people that weren't going to, you know, kind of excel. And I, I got into that mentality pretty early. And that was a big, big kick forward by the government because they were closing playing fields and just making it more difficult for kids to do physical education, which. You know, it's crucial in schools. If you, if you don't get a balanced kid with academics and, uh, you know, recreation and, and sport, then you know, you're not helping to produce good, good human beings. So, so off the back of that, I took, um, at my university through the years, they, they gave us um, funds to do our part one coaching badges in literally everything. So I got my part one in volleyball, badminton, squash, trampolining. Um, and it was to give the teachers a bit of a, you know, a bit of a leg up. Um, so at the end of uh, year two, I managed to get a job at my squash club, just coaching two nights a week uh, to supplement income as a student. So I was probably one of the wealthiest students because I was making 60 pounds a week. <laughs> and then um, I really didn't want to go into the teaching and, and someone offered me a job at a place called um, Kingswood Squash Club in Basildon, which at the time I think was the largest squash club in, in England, uh, had a 19 courts. And it was, uh, you know, a really developing club, good, good playing standard. But the club to be at was a place called Wanstead Squash Club, probably the best amateur squash club in the world. They used to win the Cumberland Cup. So the, the premium kind of tournament in, in England was the, was the Cumberland Cup. And they would often have a pro at number one, a bit like leagues that you've, you've seen take place. And um, I eventually went there in uh, 1980, early 81. And that's when my my coaching career really took off. I was coaching full-time then.
0: Hmm. Okay. And so uh, I think, yeah, I was just probably born about then. So obviously that's why I (laughs) I want to get you on here because you have so much more experience. Uh, I know you've worked with so many great players, even more than I I just named off uh, the top of my head there. But uh, So what's something that you enjoy most about coaching Swash?
1: I I think um, at the young age, I like that light-on moment when a kid hits the ball, and it's a sweet hit, and he know he recognises that he's actually hit a good squash ball because they then really try and replicate that. Once you've got them in that kind of mindset, they really want to replicate it, and that's that's exciting. Um, I like seeing people reach their full potential. I mean, Peter was a good example. He came to me when he was 18, and he said, you know, I want to be a, a number one player in the world, and I said, well, I can't guarantee that, but I could say so we can probably between us guarantee you trying your hardest to be the best you possibly can, and why don't we see where that takes you? And and obviously that was a that was the start point really for for getting all the pros.
0: So in coaching Peter, is that kind of your success with him allowed you to these other guys just you know
1: yeah? So, you? so I I was on court with him probably five hours a day in the early years for probably eighteen months on my own, and then I, I realized I just couldn't. Do and a couple of other players had asked if they could come and join in. So, we have a couple of regular practice partners. And then over the next period, as he got better and better, I think he got to about 28 in the world after year three. I didn't let him play a tournament in the first year. Just got him really fit, strong and, and mentally strong. He had the added incentive. He lost his mum that year when I met him. So, that was very difficult for him. Um, but then, then the guys in the area who were all kind of semi-pros, they all wanted to turn pro, and, and we had probably, I guess we had a dozen pros coming in and out. And my, my idea was always just to have a stable of players where there was a training base that anyone could come in for a day or they could come in full time um, and, and just make use of it. Uh,
0: so what, what's something, like, obviously, just a couple of questions here on Peter Nichol. Um, so if you were training in, like, the modern game, what's something you would do differently with in training?
1: Well, I think with any great champion, you... you are able to adapt. So to give you a couple of examples, when Peter first played Jonathan Power, he was really struggling to read him because he wasn't trusting kind of his movement patterns. So he spent a good six months, um, you know, just making, making him more comfortable with his movement so that he didn't have to react too quickly Could wait, and then just trust the movement. And then the, the previous one to that was obviously uh, Jansha. And Jansha was, as he was getting a little bit older, he was very cleverly kind of getting in the way a little bit. So we would create the same scenario on the squash court where I literally would block him while I'm feeding him and he'd make a wider arc to the ball so that he didn't cram up when he got in the corners. And he was able to play, you know, a choice of shot rather than being forced to hit a cross court.
0: So what would, what would, what's something specifically you would try to get him to do to, you know, compete against somebody who's either, you know, I mean, there's different, you know, either you have like Sherbaggy, Paul Cole, who just, you know, are so kind of, uh, intimidating on court, uh, really fit players or the, you know, some of the Egyptian players who are just like, you know, have amazing attacking shots. They're very kind of a flashy, they have wristy, risky type of style. So how do you think he would fare against those types of styles of squash games?
1: I think, uh, as I mentioned, any great champion would a, would adapt to that. I mean, Jan just saw off Jahangir and then, uh, You know, he saw off the challenges of Rodney Martin and and Rodney Isles and those guys. And he he adapted his game. He actually became a lot more attacking uh, the less fit he got um, when he was a little bit older. And the same happened with Peter. So when he won the, uh, I think he won the Commonwealth Games. And for about two years, he was just really working on his attacking game so that he could finish rallies a little bit more quickly. So I think, you know, if if you throw him up against any of those individuals, I think you'd find a way to make it work. From the training perspective, it probably would have to be way more intense for shorter periods of time. Because obviously with a with point of rally scoring system at 211, the matches are way shorter than they were when they got to, to 15.
0: Yeah. And do you think that uh, just because there's so few lefties, do you think uh, like Peter or any other lefty always has a slight advantage when they step on court?
1: I think it's a huge advantage because the, the lefties always play against right-handers, whereas the right-handers very rarely play against left-handers. And actually, <laughs> I know this is really, I'm not left-handed, but my best players, um, apart from Bengi and uh, Aslan, uh, the top three were all left-handed. So there was Pete Nickel, Lyons Andima and Chris Walker, who got to three in the world. So that was, um, it was, it was a, a big thing to change the forehand in the back corner against the right-hander's backhand, because that that forehand on anyone's game has got to be destructive. And it, and it, it wasn't, you know, you could contain someone on the backhand side if you're left-handed, your backhand. Um, but it, on the other side, you really needed to be putting a lot of pressure on. So we worked pretty hard on that to, to change that.
0: Well, I was always, I've always found that, uh, yeah, lefties in the back left corner, just they can hit that cross court with more pace than you're used to with other right-handed yeah. players. And in yeah. the front left corner, usually against right-handed players, you leave them in the front front left corner and uh, you don't, you feel kind of safe. Like it's hard for them to get enough pace and width on if they're going to cross it by you. Uh, but lefties are, I always find it's more deceptive because you just don't get a, a lot of uh, chance of reading them. But what about when they're just like sticking to that, the forehand or the, the hand of forehand side. So the right wall, like what, do you, what uh, what's a good way to cross it back over to a lefty's forehand or, do you, would you tell them just to keep straight and, you know, get better on your backhand and, and be able to compete? Yeah, I think,
1: I think you've still got to attack the backhand high. So, you know, if I was a right-hander playing against the left-hand, I would really take it up uh, very high onto their backhand side. And um, I, think, I think having seen matches, say I saw a match between Pete Barker and, uh, and LJ, you know, there's a lot more cross-courts where lefties play lefties. And uh, we encourage the left-handers to, uh, to keep it fairly straight, particularly behind. And I saw your, your comments uh, on the questions there about keeping it straight from the back of the court. But the advantage a left-hander has in that uh, left-wall side of the back is with the stance closed, it's very difficult to read because the racket's further back than it is when it's on the, on the backhand side preparation.
0: Yeah, I, well, actually, that reminds me of, uh, like, Matt Bishop, I, I mentioned to you uh, a few years ago at, I think it was at one of the nationals and uh, you know, I, we, your name came up and we were just talking about um, you know, coaching and, and he mentioned how like, you know, obviously Matt hits a great straight drive and, and uh, he mentioned that you said that you should actually like angle your shoulders and hips like in towards the sidewall a little, a little bit more. And I always, you know, kind of taught my athletes to be more, more parallel. And obviously if you're going to rotate your shoulders and get more power, then you know, your shoulders might, uh, obviously not be parallel to the sidewall anymore, but um, you know, what's your take on, on how you teach somebody to line up uh, to play a good straight drive?
1: Well, I think that you've described a couple of things there. What I've found with, the, with a better straight drive is the weight of shot that we're looking for. So as much of your body weight, center of gravity over the ball, will hit the ball against the front wall, and the ball will travel through and bounce and then die. Whereas if you just hit with your arm, the ball tends to bounce and come off, the back, come off the back wall. The second advantage of that is when you're transferring weight from your back foot to your front foot, your movement and your follow through to the tee is much more natural because you're making it a natural movement by getting that forward momentum. And so I think that that saves a lot of, um, a lot of energy over the course of a match. But to do it, you've actually got to work very, very hard to get into position. And until that becomes your norm, it's actually very hard to do because it's it's hard work, you know, it's physically hard work and challenging mentally for people. And when they don't have success at it, um, you know, they lose interest. But Matt was a very good example, certainly over here in Canada, of someone that was prepared to persevere and just, you know, over over probably 18 months, two years of three sessions a week, he was able to really produce that. And Zal Devahu, you know, the referee, he watched him at Nationals when he won the first over 30s Nationals. And he couldn't believe his length. His length basically won the tournament for him. And he was never really put under any pressure because he was dictating the, the control of the game.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I've played him four or five times. So I know, uh, I know his, especially if his forehand drives are definitely tighter than mine. Um, so I, that's why I wanted to just bring that up and see if there yeah. are tips that I, that I can steal and practice for my own game. Uh, hopefully there'll be a Nationals next season and, and uh, something I can work on. But it's um, interesting
1: because a, a lot of coaches would disagree with that. Um, but, I, but I also find if, if they can do that, then they can do the open stance way more easily. It's more difficult to go from an open stance to a closed stance than the other way around because you're in better control of your body than your center of gravity.
0: Yeah, I, I know what you said about um, like swinging just with your arm, you're not going to get the weight a shot. But I know I, I found like on the forehand, like I'm going to get a lot more power. Um, if like I swing and use my shoulders a little bit and more um weight transfer from like back hip to front hip, but I find like if I if I kind of lock that in place a little bit more and use more of just my arm and less like shoulders and and weight transfer, then I actually keep the ball a lot straighter, but I'll have less power. So it's, I, I don't know for me personally, it's just trying to find that balance between those two to have still it is,
1: yeah, yeah, it's a, tra- a trade off all, all the time, it's a trade off, and then of course. That's maybe 60% of the time you're doing that. The other 40% of the time you're improvising based on the, the shot coming your way.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of it's growing up, um, you know, not always having a coach and just not feeling confident to play that shot. So under pressure, just going cross court way too much out of the back forehand corner. And, and then uh, you, you never really learn how to actually hit a great straight drive, like unless you really work at it over and over. But,
1: yeah. Well, I think I looked um, looked down your list of questions, and you mentioned the juniors. You know, what should you teach? What What do you What do you think I should think they should teach first? And I do. I think I think if you can hit a good straight drive from, you know, three places on the court on each side, you're pretty much ready then to to learn all the other shots from that.
0: Yeah, I was wondering about that because I've obviously worked with a lot of kids, and uh, you know, it's. it's it's always like, when do you introduce the volley if they don't have a great already ground stroke? When to introduce tactics if, you know, they, you know, are, you know, barely, you know, they're still playing around with their swing. So it's always interesting as a coach to think about like, you know, you have to obviously integrate some of these other areas because you don't want to be an athlete or coach an athlete who like maybe has great technique, but they can't think for themselves and they, they don't have any variety
1: uh, on court. So what, what's your take on that? So if I'm working with, um, whether I'm working with kids or professionals, we always have a theme of the day. So the theme might be uh, the straight drive. It might be taking the ball early. And it's just gradually introducing each of those concepts. You know, how to use the boast, when to use the boast, um, the two different types of boast, you know, the attacking boast and the defensive boast. You know, so you, you try and, it's a, it's a kind of a feel thing. So if you're working with a kid, say, so I've always been lucky because uh, the kids that I've trained here in Canada, I, the parents are brought into the idea that they can go to a, an Ivy League school on a scholarship. So they, they retained me. They didn't pay fortunes, but they retained me so that I could coach them four or five times a week. And the a, added bonus to that is, obviously, you can introduce things when you think they need it. And then, you know, you can take it from there. Whereas if you've only got a lesson for once a week, you, know, you really are just working on whatever you can do.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I know I talked about, um, uh, last uh, two episodes ago, I talked with a, a coach who was in England for a while and he said that in England, they just, you know, the kids and the adults have so many matches cause they're in, there's so many leagues available that a lot of times in lessons will be very technical. And then I think in Canada and the U S sometimes it's a little bit different and there's less match play. Um, you know, and I think sometimes the lessons are, have to be a bit more tactical based, but you know, it does depend on, on who you're coaching and what level they are yeah, I don't know. That's one of the interesting parts of coaching for me.
1: Yeah. Well, I, there's, always a, there's always a theme of the day, but also there's three parts to the lesson, whether it be an hour's lesson or you've got a full session in the morning. And that is the technical starts. Um, you probably, I suppose we're doing two hours. The technical would probably be about 45 minutes. And then there would be some tactical work with some condition games. And then always finish with a, with a competitive game, just so you finish as if you, you played a match.
0: Yeah. No, I I like that structure and just, you know, you should be able to work on, uh, you know, different aspects. And just by doing that, you're also going to get the physical and kind of mental part too. Um, Yeah. That's our next question I I have for you is what's something you always try to instill in your athletes, whether it's a junior or professional player?
1: I think the first thing, because people can be easily distracted, um, is discipline. The discipline starts by being at the club 45 minutes early, you know, going through a, a routine proper routine to get yourself mentally and physically ready for the session. And then the way the drills are set up, often it's they don't know it, but you're teaching them discipline within the drill. And then that gives them the basis then to start to make some good shot selections. Because one of the, the most difficult things for people is to get the shot selection right. They might have a lot of skill, but they overdo the ball to the front. They hit too much cross court. They play too many bows. You know, So we're, we're looking at that as a form of discipline by only maybe allowing them, you know, one cross-court per rally. And it really changes the way they think when you start to, in, um, when you start to initiate those kind of disciplines. And you're, you're basically um, intangibly giving them the discipline that you know that they need when they, when they get good.
0: Yeah, I think that's something uh, like I've traveled uh, overseas for some coaching and seen some squash overseas as well. And uh, I, I definitely feel like a lot of the North American juniors have less discipline in their game. Uh, not all of them, but I would say most of them, uh, compared to the, some of the other countries that I've, I've seen squash play at that level. Uh, so you, I definitely notice uh, that difference. And you can, you know, I think that's cultural as well, right? I think that's a big part of it.
1: Well, you must have, you must have noticed it in Canada. You know, the Canadian players play very differently to a lot of the other countries. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so if you could only do one type of off-court training, whether it's for a junior you were recommending or, or a professional player somewhere in between, what would you recommend?
1: I would recommend to uh, make sure that you're keeping your MVO2, uh, your oxygen capacity up. Um, so it would be some form of interval training, whether it be on a bike or on the outside or on the track or whatever. I find that if you, if you're getting really good blood supply to your muscles, you can pretty much do a, a hard session when you go back.
0: Yeah, I I, I don't know. I didn't have this on my list of questions, but it's something I'm always curious about because there's all these different body types uh, that you see at the highest level. Like you look at Ali Farag and and uh, Paul Cole, and like they definitely train differently, but I bet their VO two max would be quite similar.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um. So something. Uh, just looking ahead to next season. Uh, obviously you know we could be a while without tournaments and uh, league play uh, maybe even just regular match play so what if you were coaching somebody for next year what would you try to do to kind of keep their motivation up or just to kind of keep them progressing uh, without that competitive experience
1: we definitely if you can't get on a squash court there's always a wall available to you and we've seen some videos on uh on uh, Jamie Maddox's thread where people are outside hitting the ball. It, it's, it's probably one of the only sports where people love hitting the ball. You know, you, golfers go out and they hit some balls, but they you know, might only hit 20 or 30. But squash players love hitting the ball. They love that feel of a ball on a racket. And obviously, any kind of movement, they get a good sweat on. So forget professionals and forget kids or whatever. Just that lovely relationship of the, of the bat and the ball. It's, it's fantastic. It's, that's that's another thing that really excites me when when you see people enjoying just hitting a ball. Federer, is another great example. You know, the press say to him, "Oh, were you disappointed to get to this, only get to the semi final of the US this year or or Wimbledon?" And he and he says, "You guys don't get it." He says, "I actually really enjoy playing tennis and I yeah. love hitting a tennis ball." And when you see him practicing and you see some of his kind of fun shots. It's just pure joy when he hits that ball. It's probably most, one of the most aesthetically pleasing shots I've ever seen. Aesthetically pleasing to the eye is Roger Federer's backhand.
0: Yeah, and that's. No, I, I would agree with that. And I think you know there's a reason why like, I think most tennis fans only watch the majors is because they want to see, uh, see how Federer does or maybe Nadal or, or something. But I think, you know... Yeah. It, uh, I mean, there's a reason that he's still competing at the, at his age, right? Like obviously he has enough money and he could do whatever he wants in the world, but uh, you know, yeah. no, nothing else that really um, replaces what, it, you know, that enjoyment part of, of uh, tennis is. And I think that's the same for squash. Like, even though, you know, people, you know, maybe are trying to overcome injury um, or they just aren't as fast as they used to be or as mobile, then they, you know, they still just want to play because it's something you can get on court and and whether it's by yourself or with somebody else, you kind of just, you kind of, you know, time goes quickly and, and you just, you know, it's so enjoyable. It's that um, the zone,
1: I guess, is kind of what you get into. Totally. And, and the, the thing from that is that uh, a lot of my players, when they were coming to the ends of their career, they said, you know, when, when should we retire? And I said, you'll know when, when to retire when you're not enjoying it anymore. If you're not enjoying the training, you're certainly not going to enjoy the matches because you're not going to be in good enough. Um, shape to play them um, but you know once you once you lose that um, feel for the for the game and the and the ball and enjoying it then you might as well go and get another job
0: well I, know I, yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think I saw LJ won the world masters last year right so obviously he's still yeah. playing at a super high level and enjoying it or you know it's not like he's going there for a paycheck
1: you know his probably his favorite hit every week is with his 69 or 70 year old dad yeah so his, his dad won 18 dutch titles and he's hilarious because you can't ever remember anyone's name and he's really he's massive like he's six six and wide he wow. used to come to our front door in england to visit lj and we had a glass front door and robert would come to the front door and it would be like a total eclipse <laughs> the light was blocked out in our hallway <laughs> uh,
0: i think that's the beauty of squash though it's for all shapes and sizes like i'm not yeah. the biggest guy like but you know i've you know, competed against like, you know, much taller and stronger guys. And, you know, it's not like divided by weight class, like in wrestling. And, and, uh, and, you know, I don't know, like some people say there's an ideal size and body type, but you know, you see differences even at uh, even on the top of the pro rankings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I got a couple of questions here. Uh, It's more, I guess, you know, theoretical, but, I'm always curious about different styles of squash. So if you had somebody who played very conservative, traditional for quite a while, um, you may maybe their whole career, but all of a sudden they, they feel like they've plateaued. Do you think it's possible to change their style completely and become like a more attacking, um, just open up the court using different angles? Do you think that's something they should play with at all? Or, or do you think that's like once they've already gotten to a certain point and they've played for that many years, that that's going to be doing more harm than good.
1: Well, I think it's an attitude of mind. I think lots of players go through this this cycle where they play with a lot of discipline. They play with uh, uh, they learn to play with a bit more freedom than perhaps they would play in their endeavours to get a result. So as they as they get older, they, their shot selection does improve, and you've actually. Probably seen three or four, three or four players go through a, a, the same metamorphosis where they start off as a shot player, they become a little bit more conservative, and then they revert back to being a shot player at the end of it. And I, I think that that's true of many, many players. I mean, if you look at Peter in his last three years, he was as attacking as as he's ever been in his career. Um, and I think you know he he realised he couldn't have all those physical reserves that he had when he was twenty one. 2225. So he had to adapt to to those games, and I think I think a lot of people. Uh, for me, Mohamed El Shabagi got uh, sorry, uh, Rami. Sure, got better when he started to lob. Like his lob is fantastic. He's got a really steep curve on it. He's got a lovely parabola at the top, and you know he he's he shown that the lob is probably the, that's another one of your questions. But the lob is for me the most important shot because it can be the best defensive weapon, but also the most attacking weapon.
0: Yeah, I I definitely agree. Like, I always tell people I coach that it's, you know, probably the most underused shot, undervalued shot. Um, And, you know, I think Randy, especially moving the front right, like he just doesn't have, um, you know, he can't always just stop. He always has to sometimes run through the shot. So for him, it's buying time. But it's, I also think it's it's a lot harder to have the touch to play a hard lob than it is to play a good drop. Because for a lob, you're generally under a lot of pressure. And uh, when you're going to, bring the ball in short, obviously you're you know, not under pressure or that much pressure or you probably wouldn't be playing that shot. So I think the lob actually takes a lot more skill to be able to play well. But he's definitely, I think that's one of his best shots and he probably does have the best lob. Um, yeah, and
1: it's a, there's an interesting way of teaching the lob as well. So if you kind of put a camera underneath the racket that's really open at the front of the court and you look up, the, the height that people hit on the front wall, they tend to gain height from the front wall and so the lob travels, whereas the, the, the really good lob has a very steep ha- angle on it. And I make the kids lie down and look up at the front wall. And I make them kind of bend down and look at the front wall. And obviously, it looks way, way higher when they're actually laying on the floor. And so if you can get your racket down to that level and come underneath it and clip somewhere you know, six inches below the red line, you're going to make it, if you get the pace right, you're going to make it a sensational shot. But as you say, it's very, very difficult to do, and a lot of people don't persevere with that. They tend to practice things that they like. But it certainly, it, it was certainly my my game in my era. I beat Ross in 1987 after he'd beaten Jehanvier, and Jonah and I worked out a tactical plan, and it was it was all about changing the pace as regularly as possible because he liked the thump, 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 and. Uh, same same with Peter and Chris Walker. I mean, both had beautiful lobs, and it was from their backhand front corner to the high backhand right right hander's backhand, which notoriously is a slightly weaker area if you can get up high enough. So it became even more kind of devastating.
0: Yeah, well, I think a lot of the problem with a lot of juniors is they can't actually get low enough to get, to get under the yeah. lob, it. and 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 also I think like. When they're running fast they want to swing fast so if they're running faster under pressure they, they yeah. have relaxing their arm and uh, lifting out of pressure but that's you know the pros make it look so easy but it's it's obviously a lot a lot more difficult shot than uh, it appears yeah
1: yeah jenny um, used to say jenny used to say the red line yeah, for the service line the bit below was for the gentleman and the bit above was for the ladies
0: <laughs> well that's uh, sometimes that's how it uh, still appears but uh yeah i mean it definitely shouldn't i think that's you what you're you know wasting half the court or more if you're only using the bottom half of the court but yeah. and, uh, a few other women actually only play below the line too <laughs> i mean <some> of those <laughs> egyptian women just crack everything so
1: it's oh, incredible the, the pace yeah. of the game now is extraordinary uh
0: so a question we talked talked about ramey a couple of times and you know, I'm just always curious and fascinated by, like, how he holds the racket, and it's just so untraditional. Um, like, I don't know what, I haven't heard about what his coaches would have said to him when he was young, um, growing up, but it, do you think he's just a one-off, or do you think, like, that's something that, you know, if you saw a student and he was, you know, at a high level and he was holding the racket like that, would you have him try to change it more conventional, or would you just say, hey, if, it, if it's working and you can play all these shots and execute on That's right.
1: No. You, actually you can make a comparison with golf um you know the grip and the swing uh you see all sorts of different golfers you look someone like Jim Furyk and uh then you look at Ernie Els with almost the perfect mechanics but they still get the, the crucial bits done when, when it's when it's necessary when they hit the ball the, these people come along from time to time um Zaman used to hold the racket slightly differently which gave him a greater range of shots. And I think that's where, where Ramy's really scored heavily on points. But I think you'll find if you talk to any professional, they would have played around with their grip a lot over the years. Uh, they might shorten the grip in the back corner, for example. They might turn it around a little bit wider on the backhand side for an open racket face. I think, um, I think every pro has, has been up and down the handle and been around the handle several times to, to find out what's comfortable for them.
0: So you think it's more about once you get to a certain level, then experiment, but for a junior coming up, just, you know, developing, you want to be a bit more conventional until you can get to that point where you can experiment. Do you think that's fair? I, th-
1: I think that's, that's very true. And, you know, you, you coach lots and lots of people, you know, that with conventional grip, they should be able to hit in a little while, some decent shots to then, if they want to play around with it when they're better. Yeah. By all means go ahead, but you know,
0: well, I know I see a lot of photos of, uh, you know, pro players now and, and um, you know, and and I just see their thumb straight up on the racket like a badminton player. And that's something I never saw like five to 10 years ago. And now no, me neither. certain times where it, like I think it's usually the front of the court or they're playing a volley and they must be using that thumb to like push more or maybe to have a shorter swing and get more power. Uh, but that's something I personally can't do, so I, I wouldn't teach it, but, uh, you know, I think you know, obviously, there's, if there's a lot of players using that, it must be, you know, for a reason. So I don't, I don't know if you, you have you seen that or do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I see it. And, and it's particularly uh, effective with risky players because, okay. you, can, you know, someone like Brett Martin from years ago, he held the racket round a little bit more, the thumb round a little bit more. And he was so tricky at the front of the court. He could literally dislocate his wrist from that. If you hold it conventionally, it tends to keep the wrist a little firmer. And so you don't have that same kind of whip. So I'm sure during the match, if you actually could video, you know, the grip, it wouldn't always be the thumb round. There'll be other times when it's slightly more conventional.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a lot more like little things have changed in the last few years and stuff that, you know, I think maybe a lot of people don't notice, but uh, something as a coach, you always pick that up and you're like, whoa, like what's happening here? How's the game changing before our eyes?
1: well, when these guys are these guys are winning rallies quite quickly, whereas you know in the and the older the older days, a with the system of point of rally, uh, normal scoring to nine, but then point of rally to fifteen, you had so many more opportunities to stay in the game, just by con by containment. When I mean, it doesn't look like there's any containment going on at all on the world circuit now, it's literally all out attack. You know, that that I think is you know partly due to um, the point rally scoring to 11. Every point is absolutely critical. You've got to win every point, no matter where, which way you can. You find any way to win a point.
0: So uh, do, I don't have this on the list, but I'm just curious like, about the, the pro tour. Do you think they're going to go to two out of three for all the matches at some point? Or do you think they'll stick with three out of five for the
1: majority of the tur- their tournaments? I, I think that they'll stick to it. If, if, there, was, um, if there was another 20 tournaments, uh, 100,000 upwards, then I think they would change it, but if you've only got sort of ten, twelve big tournaments a year, I don't know. From the TV perspective, from the viewing perspective of the spectators, value for money, you know, there's lots of factors in that. Sponsorship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah, I think if if we had an abundance of tournaments, it would make sense, and would prolong the players' career and allow them to maybe play eighteen tournaments instead of you know twelve at that at that high five five-day matches that that's hard yeah Got a few of those it's
0: hard well at least a good thing now in a lot of the tournaments the big ones they'll actually like split the draw out early in the round so you can have a day off between your matches which you know when you're a junior or most pros like coming and playing smaller tournaments sometimes you're playing two or three matches in a day and if you're playing four or five setters two or three in a day i don't care how fit you are uh you sure. know not built for that
1: that's right. And it's, and again, you know, with the bigger tournament, uh, I think more money has come into the game and that's allowed them to do that because back when I was playing the British Open, it was, it was every day until maybe you went to Wembley on the glass court and they might split the quarters or something like that. Yeah. Uh,
0: so I just got a last couple of questions here. Uh, one is if you have any advice for young up and coming coaches.
1: Oh, that's a good question actually. Um, I would say I would ask them to to talk to as many coaches as possible and as many good players, um, and listen. You know, listen to what people are saying, and see what kind of fits in your your brain pattern that you think you can then translate that to to students in a good way. Um, I, I find nowadays the kids don't know the history of the game, the players don't necessarily know the history of the game. Um, it, it's important to know that. You know, Hashim Khan was around and Jeff Hunt was around and Jada Barrington was around and then Jahangir and, and Jansha. And why were they around? You know, Pete Nichol, Mohamed El why were they around? What's, what are the common denominators that make great champions? Obviously, you have to think like a champion to have a chance to be a champion. If you don't even think like one, you're never going to get anywhere near that. Um, and then act like a champion, develop really good routines not necessarily on the court, but off the court, that uh, give you the absolute maximum chance to get the best out of your out of your game or out of your or your student's game. So yeah, listening, asking questions, and listening is is a huge thing for me.
0: Okay, great. And what do you think? I think we already talked a little. Maybe this is your most
1: underrated shot. But is it
0: your most underrated shot the lob, or is there something else?
1: No, it is the lob. I mean, okay. it really. If you can get that lob right, you can you can stay in rallies that you probably would lose if you tried to attack it, and then the defense turns straight away into uh, into attack because if you play a good lob, you're probably going to get a slightly weaker, shorter return, and you can instantly pounce on that. So you know, as as a lob dropper um, in in later life, you're doing a little bit more running around, but it's a bit more free running around rather than that strong positioning where you're using a lot of energy and you're just using the space that's available to you on the court.
0: So for a a kind of drill to work on that, what do you, how do you like, um, like I would like to do one person can hit anything and then the other person has to do everything over the service line. And obviously that'd be super tough. I mean, you're not probably going to win, but it's going to make you have to force to lift and get low, especially the front of the court. Do you think that would be a good way to practice it or?
1: Yeah, and there's there's a very good routine. Um, so you serve, the return is straight back down the wall, and then it's both cross court lob, volley probably or straight drive, and that sequence repeats itself. And you get uh, you can do a scoring system where you get one point for the second panel down from the top if you win the rally. But if you win the rally from the top panel and get two points, you know if you put a competitive edge to it. It tends to make people focus a little bit more on exactly where they're where they're hitting the ball because everyone likes to win points, don't they? Yeah, no, I like that idea. Yeah, I haven't. my fa- things my things favorite done. routine is definitely both drive with one op- with one option. Okay, I think it's still still the fundamental of the game. Um, you, you're moving in and out the corners in a way that you you have to hit it straight. The hardest thing often is to hit the ball straight when you're under pressure.
0: Yeah, well, that was actually my, my next question was your favorite drill. So it's both drive with one option.
1: Yeah, one so option. Should, and, would it be an option uh, front or back? Say again?
0: Would it be an option with the front person or the back person?
1: Or both? Uh, both. But you only get one, one chance in a rally. So it, you choose whether you drop it. Yeah. You can only do that once. Rally continues. And the guy at the back, if he gets a short drive from his opponent, he has the right to drive it back down the wall.
0: And then would they switch or would
1: they just no. get no, they play a whole game, play a whole game like that. So they're really working on that one thing with one option. And then you, then you change them over.
0: And, and it's one option per rally, right? Not per game.
1: One, one option per rally. If you, if you have a left, then you get your option back again, but only one. And it just really makes it a, a very disciplined drill. And then when you play a drop shot, you know, you played it. If you win the rally, you know, you played it exactly the right time. Well, I, say, I like that, yeah.
0: I, li- I like yeah. how engaged the other person has to be because, oh, he might play that shot instead of normal boast drive where you're
1: you're half-watching, you're not moving to the tee, and you're flat-footed. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then of course, when you're boast driving, even though the person has to boast, you're trying to force the boast with the quality of your length. So that changes the mindset. You're not just hitting it up to the back of the court and he boasts it around and you hit it to the back of the court. It takes on a greater intensity because if you can force that post and then get on the drop pretty quick, then you're pretty much guaranteed to win the rally.
0: Well, I'm definitely going to steal that one from you. Uh, (laughs) So I um, I don't know if you have another favorite drill, then maybe I I like that one. So if you have another one I can steal, then uh, let me know.
1: I'll let you know. That'd be great. (laughs) Great chatting to you, Chris. So I I have one final
0: question uh, because I just, you know, if there is nationals next year, if you have any tips for me, if I play Matt Bishop again,
1: <laughs> tell his wife to have another baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably my best chance, yeah. A, f- a few sleepless nights normally does the trick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, well thanks so much for coming on, Neil.
1: Yeah, I hope you I hope you get back on court soon with your with your team and uh all the best to you. Keep up the good work. Okay, the, thanks. Uh, talk talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. bye.
0: That's it for episode four of the Serious Squash podcast. Thanks so much, Neil, for coming on. I know I learned quite a few things, and I'm sure you guys did too. Uh, Kind of selfishly, I feel like I'm becoming a better coach with everyone I interview. And I hope you guys are enjoying that information, learning more about the game, and really gets you thinking a little bit more about squash, whether you're a coach or a player. Uh, If you enjoy the podcast, feel free to subscribe, rate, and review uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, If you want to follow Cirrus Squash online, I'm on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Cirrus Squash and you'll find it. And uh, also Squash Shots is on Patreon. Uh, That's where I produce a weekly exclusive video. Uh, So that's been going for about 65, 66 episodes now. Uh, You can find that at patreon.com slash Cirrus Squash. So until uh, next episode, uh, take care and see you soon.